We're getting ready to start with our Sunday school. So let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we come together this morning with joyful hearts because we can gather together in fellowship in your spirit. We can gather together around your word, Lord. We thank you for your word, that it's powerful, it's transforming, and it's effective to transform us, Lord, more into the image of our Savior. We pray that it'll be effective in that way this morning. We pray that you will oversee what is said, what is discussed, and that your word will impact us. Help us to listen to your word in a way that receptive for what you have for us. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, that we can come together in the joy of your word. In the precious name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we finished the uh, <coughs> first epistle of Peter, so this morning we're embarking in a new study, and uh, we'll be going to Second Peter. And Second um, Peter has some significant differences from 1 Peter. Of course, if you've noticed, the first thing you notice is that uh, it has two less chapters than 1 Peter, only three chapters there, so it's shorter, but it does, it's shorter, but it does pack a, a good punch. Let me just begin as we look this morning at the introduction of 1 Peter. We're not actually going to get direct into the text in terms of expository looking at the text yet this morning, we'll start with that next week. This morning we'll just have sort of introductory remarks regarding the second epistle of Peter. So I want to start with two quotes, one from R.C. Sproul and one from John MacArthur. And these quotes really have, if you listen to them, then just uh, keep them in mind as we go through the introduction because it, it does have a direct relationship to the epistle of Second Peter. R.C. Sproul said, throughout church history, it has been the teaching of heretics that has forced the church to refine and make precise her confession of faith. See what R.C. Sproul is saying here, that actually the fact that throughout church history there have been many false teachers, many heretics that have brought teaching completely incompatible with the biblical truth, yet it has been this that has forced the church to refine and make precise her confession of faith, because if it has forced the church to come along and answer these heretics, so that it has had a purifying effect in the church in a way. Of course, you know, Satan, as the great counterfeiter, brings about false teachers to destroy the church, but yet the Lord uses that to help purify the church. The other quote is from John MacArthur. <clears throat> and he says, The worst form of wickedness existing today is the perversion of sound doctrine. So the worst form of wickedness existing today is the perversion of sound doctrine. And why is that? Because the perversion of biblical truth the perversion of sound doctrine damns people to hell. It brings people who think they are 
in good terms with God, following false teaching, but yet they're certainly not. And so, as we look at, at Second Peter, we will see that one of the emphasis that Peter has is the fact of dealing with false teachers. As a matter of fact, that's probably one of the main motivations for writing the epistle. And as we you know, begin to look at a new book in the Bible, we want to look at certain background information which is important in terms of helping us with the context of the epistle. And then as we go through it, it will be helpful in our interpretation of it. And there are many wonderful truths present in those three small chapters in Second Peter. But Second Peter, though, has a certain history. If you look at, for example, commentaries in the New Testament, Second Peter and Jude are probably two of the epistles that have the, the fewer commentaries that have been written to than any of the other New Testament books. When we examine Second Peter, we immediately encounter there are many standard criticisms by New Testament scholars. It has a very uh, history of having many questions brought about Second Peter in terms of authorship and uh, it's being the book has been challenged, and so has its legitimacy as being part of the New Testament canon, even. Now, all of that is basically driven by an attempt to undermine the authority of biblical documents, because most of those critics are usually ones that have um, conclusions when they come to the text, and so they bring up challenges. But there are some also serious uh, scholars who have brought up uh, doubts. And we're going to look at some of that this morning because it's good in terms of the context of, of the epistle. Second Peter has been called the forgotten stepchild of the New Testament, also has been called the dark corner of the New Testament together with Jude, which has a sort of a similar history as Second Peter. As a result, it's not often preached or studied or discussed or quoted the book is even neglected, in, especially in scholarly circles, where the critics dismiss it as a pseudonymous or forged letter. In other words, it's determined that it was written by someone passing himself off as Peter. And um, they say that it was really because of Certainly, and we're going to look at some of those reasons why they think of some of that, but basically they say it's kind of a forger, really, where someone, someone wrote the epistle probably in the second century and um, passing, identifying himself as Peter. But the Church of Jesus Christ must not ignore this wonderful epistle because of all the great truths it has in it. Now, Peter understood that the greatest threat to the well-being of God's people is false teaching. And so he undertakes to write this epistle to correct and warn the the, uh, churches that he writes to about false teachers which will come. After all, Peter wrote this epistle to help believers face a world that was filled with uh, just subtle or outright spiritual deception 
Now, Peter knew that his death was imminent. In chapter 1 and verse 14, he so states that. And the apostle wanted to remind his readers of the truth that he had already taught them. So there are some parallels with First Peter's in terms of when he speaks of grace. But it goes beyond some of the, of course, the things he wrote in First Peter. And so he wanted to expose the apostates or the false teachers, which he knew were starting to appear and he knew more would continue to appear. So he wanted to prepare the congregations for that. And of course, all of the congregations throughout time after that. This epistle really has never been more timely than it is today, especially with the rapid advancement of mass media that we have. There are so many opportunities for, the, uh, for false teachers to spread their false teaching. And together with that, of course, is the fact that there are many who attend church and many churches who had showed an extreme lack of biblical discernment in terms of what they listen to, examining it from the point of view of the Bible. False teachers propagate their heresies, of course, via television, radio, the Internet, books, magazines, seminars, whatever they can get people and lure them into listening to their false teaching. And, making matters worse, many of the churches, because of the fact of perhaps a wrong concept of what they consider to be love or the fact that they are motivated by fear of rejection or fear of confronting people and exhorting people with the truth of the Bible, sometimes this false teaching is let stand and is not controlled, is not counteracted. The Apostle Peter, however, had no qualms about denouncing the deceivers who threaten his beloved flocks. He recognized the deceivers for what they were, wolves in sheep's clothing, and lurking to devour the ignorant of the congregations. Now, Peter understood that false teachers are the emissaries of Satan, and they're motivated by love of money, for power, prestige, and prominence. And because they're masters of deception, they successfully peddle their doctrines to souls that are not mature in Christ. The only sure defense against the tactics of false teachers is found in the truth of God's word. And really that's what Peter eventually will, of course, lead us to. As a true man of God, he was deeply concerned to protect those under his spiritual care. He knew this, of course, which is why he penned this epistle. Now, we know Peter well. We talked about him when we started First Peter, so we're not going to go into all those you know, details we knew about him, who he is. Just to mention that you know, he's identified here as Simon Peter, Simeon, really, which is uh, the Hebrew form of that. And Peter's full name was Simon Bar-Jonah. Literally, it's Simon, son of Jonas. It was a very common name in first century Israel. At the first meeting of the Lord Jesus called him Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock. And Peter is the Greek equivalent of that name. 
And Peter, of course, we know him as a fearless preacher of the word. You see him identified that in, in Acts. He confronted Jewish authorities. He was unhesitant in disciplining members who were sinning. And he was very zealous in denouncing his false teachers, as we're going to see through Second Peter. Moreover, it was through Peter's ministry that the doors of the church were thrown open to the Gentiles when he was uh, called to, to preach there. After his appearance in the Jerusalem Council, however, in terms of the biblical account, he sort of disappears from the picture. And that's, of course, you know, that's in chapter 15 of Acts. And from then on, we don't hear much about Peter in terms of the biblical history, but until then, he, of course, he writes the two epistles of First and Second Peter. And Paul alludes to Peter in some of his writings in terms of he travels as a missionary, traveling. We know he was married and his wife traveled with him. But uh, the scriptures show that he did visit Antioch and probably traveled to Corinth and throughout Asia Minor. And of course, we know from just finishing First Peter that that epistle was addressed to congregations throughout Asia Minor. And as we're going to see this morning, most likely this second epistle was also addressed to them. Perhaps some other congregations beyond that, we can't tell really for sure, but most likely there's similar congregations. Now, according to tradition, Peter perished in Rome under Nero's persecution, and uh, he was, uh, according to tradition, uh, crucified upside down because he felt he couldn't be crucified the same way his Savior was. Now, the authorship of Second Peter, as we've mentioned already, has been disputed quite sharply by biblical scholars. And um, yet, if we read the epistle itself, it is quite clear that it was written by Peter because he states it right, right away identifies himself as Simon Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, apostle of Jesus Christ. The Greek text actually reads, like I said, Simeon, Simeon which using the Hebrew form of Peter's name. And so it, this strengthens the author's claim to be Peter, since a forger would probably not likely have used that, it's more obscured name, if a forger, because that's sort of one of the indications against you know, it being a forgery. If the author, in, in verse 14 of chapter 1, the author refers to Christ's prediction of his death, and then in verses 16 and 18 of the first chapter, he claimed to have been an eyewitness of the transfiguration. In chapter 3, verse 1, he referred to an earlier letter which he wrote, of course, most likely referring to the epistle, first epistle of Peter. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, he referred to Paul as his beloved brother, thus making himself the great apostle's spiritual peer. So these personal allusions through, in, throughout the epistle, second epistle of Peter strengthen the claim that it was written by the Apostle Peter, a claim that should be allowed to stand unless there's compelling evidence to the contrary, 
And as we examine, examine the reason people question the uh, authorship of Peter, there's really no good evidence. Mostly it's probably just related to conclusions or biases that the person said beforehand. But we, need, it, it, it's, we discuss it because in the context of the history of the, the canon of Scripture, that has played a sort of a significant role. Many critics view the personal allusions we just mentioned as the work of a forger attempting to pass himself off as Peter. That's kind of a twisted way to look at that. And there's a kind of arbitrary double standard where scholars have already made up their minds despite the evidence to the contrary. In addition to the allusions of Peter's and the personal allusions, there's language in Second Peter and Peter's speeches and acts which are similar. So that would sort of indicate it's some un- uncommon words that are used in both, and of course that would indicate more that it's the same author, the Apostle Peter. However, many scholars are not content to accept the epistles' claims at face value, and so they insist that it was written decades after the Apostle's death by someone claiming to be Peter. First, they note that the early church was slow to accept Second Peter as part of the canon of Scripture. That is true. There was a slower, perhaps, than some of the other epistles, but um, there's no evidence that there was any rejection of the epistle in terms of the formation of the canon as such. Critics also point out several alleged historical problems that they claim indicate the epistle could not have been written by Peter in Peter's lifetime. Again, but there are historical problems. For example, one of the ones they say, because, you know, when he quotes the epistles of Paul, the way that it's quoted, they assume that it's, he's really speaking of the epistles once they have been categorized and accepted as into the canon. But there's really no, no historical reason to think of that. Peter is simply just referring to some of the epistles of Paul that had been written up to that point. But, it's, but if you take the uh, position they take, then they say, well, of course, that happened after the second century, and therefore that Peter was dead by then, so it must have been someone else that wrote it. But again, it's basically the presupposition they begin with that leads them to that conclusion. It's not that it's historically accurate necessarily, because it's not. And relentlessly, the critics also point to supposed differences in the style and vocabulary between First and Second Peter, and to say that Second Peter was a different author. And finally, um, there are many say that Peter actually. Um, there were also doctor themes that are not present in Second Peter but present in First Peter. Well, obviously, he's addressing a different subject, therefore the doctrinal themes will be different. So as we examine these things closer, really, those arguments fail to disqualify Peter as the author of his epistle, and so we certainly know that from just the epistle itself and its own testimony, the apostle was the author. It's the Peter, despite the reservations of some, was finally and fully accepted by the church um, in, Kanaka, in every aspect. So it is not, as we mention these things, it's not to point out there's any deficiency in the epistle, it's just the fact that the process itself was uh, a little more protected than some of the other epistles. 
Now, as we look at uh, people that argue this way, we find some things that are just, it may point to the fact that certainly would indicate Peter is the author. For example, the vocabulary of the two epistles are different in certain aspects as well as the style. However, if you look at the percentage of words that coincide between first and second Peter is roughly the same as the percentage between first and second first Timothy and Titus in terms of Paul and in first and second Corinthians, which is part of the things that help us to evaluate the same author. Under the apostles' direction, of course, and if you remember when we went through first Peter, actually there was an amanuensis or a secretary, Sylvanus, who actually was the one that wrote first Peter. When second Peter is written, Peter's probably in prison. He's writing it from Rome, probably in prison. It's close to his death. So he didn't have a secretary there to write, so he probably wrote it himself. Therefore, the style and the vocabulary will be different. And so there's nothing wrong with that. So despite the supposed differences in style between first and second Peter, there are remarkable similarities in the book. For example, the wording of the salutations of both epistles are quite the same, basically. It's the same expression, translated a little bit different than ASB, but in First Peter, he says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. In Second Peter, says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. But actually, the phrase in Greek is the same phrase, it's just translated differently. And this phrase is found nowhere else in the New Testament. Although the different themes of each epistle require Peter to address different doctrinal issues, there's nonetheless a commonality between the two epistles. And we will <clears throat> see some of that this morning. Some of the themes that he has, both that are present both in First Peter and Second Peter, is the God's sovereign choice of believers, the need for personal holiness, God's judgment of, on immorality, the second coming of Christ, the judgment of the wicked, and Christ's lordship. And both of these are present in both First and Second Peter. As we then look at the fact of uh, the place of writing and the, the date and destination, we, the place we said already is in Rome. In terms um, of where, when it was written, now we know that Nero died in 68 A.D., and Peter died, according to, to, to history, and in, under Nero's persecution. So it has to be before then. And it's thought probably between 66 and 68 A.D., sometime around that time is when he wrote the second, his second epistle. He doesn't say where he writes from specifically in this epistle, but the fact that he mentions that his death was imminent and he, and we know he was martyred in Rome, so he probably wrote it while in prison there in Rome and in his final, final imprisonment. And as we said, he doesn't specifically mention the recipients, but he does say that he, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, therefore most likely the same recipients as uh, First Peter. Now what's the occasion, the reason for writing this epistle? Well, Peter wrote his first epistle, to comfort and instruct believers who were facing the external threat of persecution. And we've seen that as we went through First Peter. In this letter, he, then even 
there's a deadly threat of false teachers that are on the horizon, some already beginning and, and more coming in the horizon. And so Peter calls believers to be alert to these deceiving lies. Now, he doesn't identify the specific heresies in this epistle. He identifies who, whoever these heretics are and uh, identifies what they are like and how they twist the scriptures, but he doesn't identify a specific um, heresy as such. He describes the false teachers as those who follow cleverly devised tales, the, the mock the second coming of Christ, they practice immorality, despised authority, they were arrogant and vain and sought material gain. And he gives characteristics that are common to the false teachers of every age, so they are valuable for us. False teachers and their false doctrines lead to wickedness of life. Therefore, Peter focused more on their godless behavior than he did on the specific uh, teachings that they propagated. In the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know them by their fruits. Now, just to comment in terms of Second Peter and Jude are intimately related because they have very similar topics. Of course, Jude is all about um, false teachers. The interesting thing is if you look at the tenses, uh, Jude tends to use the present tense and his description of the false teachers, while Second Peter tends to use the future tense, indicating that Second Peter is dealing with them preemptively, those that are coming, and with a reality that has begun to take place, while Jude is dealing with them that are present there. So it's like Second Peter is saying they're coming, the false teachers are coming, and then when Jude writes, he says they're here, and he talks about them then. Now, in terms of the, just a brief summary of the second epistle, knowing that his time on earth was short, the apostle Peter knows that these churches then face immediate danger. And so he called upon his readers to refresh their memories and stimulate their thinking so that they would remember apostolic teaching. Both his as well as Paul are mentioned specifically throughout the, the epistle. He challenged the believers to become more mature in their faith. And this is an important theme throughout the epistle. Not just the fact of standing firm, but maturing in the faith. And he does that same by adding to specific Christian virtues. And then we'll see that in detail when we start going through the epistle. Thereby, the believer becomes more effective and productive in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Peter desired that the receivers of the letter become strong in their faith to withstand the false teachers. And so that's the topic. By strengthening your faith, your faith, you resist the false teachers. In his denunciation of the false teachers, he described their conduct and their characteristics and their condemnation. Describes what their character is like what their behavior is like, and then the fact that they are set for condemnation by God. Now, for the Christians, Peter taught in the epistle that the second coming is the incentive for holy living 
After a final warning, Peter again encouraged them to grow in the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he concludes with a word of praise to his Lord and Savior. In his uh, denunciation of the false prophets, Peter repeats a prevalent Old Testament theme in terms of the prophets. When Peter referred to the word of the prophets in chapter uh, 1, verses 19 through 21, the word of the prophets of the Old Testament. And he, had, at one time here, he denounces the false prophets, when he's referring to the prophets of the Old Testament, and at the same time, of course, affirms the true prophets which, who were moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke through them. Clearly, the same false teachers who plagued God's people in both the Old and the New Testaments are still with us, making Peter's second epistle as relevant to us today as it was when he wrote it 2,000 years ago. Certainly, as Christians in the 21st century, we are nearer to our Lord's return than the first century Christians to whom this epistle was written. Now, an important principle is the fact that mature believers are aware that through means of mass communication, many false teachers are presenting their teaching as posing as true Christian leaders. And, of course, the danger is that immature Christians have been taken in and can be taken in by these false interpretations of Scripture. And that's what Second Peter addresses. So it behooves all of us to be so grounded in the word that we will be able to discern truth from error. The same prescription for growth in faith that Peter gave when applied to our lives will assure us is also a rich reward in the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and God. The foundation of our faith is always the same word of God that Peter preached. Now, as you look at the main purpose then of Second Peter, like that of First Peter, is the establishment of believers in their faith and their life. So the main purpose is the establishing us as believer, both in our faith and then how that faith is lived out throughout our lives. The first epistle was written to the elect who are sojourners of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Of course, that's Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey. And the opening words of the third chapter of the second epistle leads us to believe that it was written to the same people when he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In 1 Peter, he dealt with the perils threatening the spiritual life of the believer and the church from without, believers who were undergoing persecution and suffering. In 2 Peter, he deals with perils threatening the spiritual life of the believer and the church from within, false teachers that he says will come from among you. So grace is sufficient That was the theme of the first letter. That's still the theme, message of the second epistle. Grace is sufficient. But now, Peter insists that grace is only sufficient as its laws are obeyed. 
No man has any right to say God's grace is sufficient to keep him if he's not obedient to the revealed word of God as revealed in his word. The first letter begins, May grace and peace be multiplied to you, and ends, Stand firm in it. In 1 Peter 5.12, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The second epistle begins with the same, uh, the same greeting, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, and ends with grow in grace. So you see the different emphasis there. Second Peter 3.18 states, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the second epistle, then, we find that it's not enough just to stand firm. There must also be growth. We stand firm in the grace of God, and then we grow in His grace. Now, the word know or knowledge is a prominent word in Second Peter. And it's used at least 13 times in this short epistle. The word does not mean a mere intellectual understanding of some truth, though that's included, of course. But it means a living participation in the truth in the sense that our Lord used it in John 17, 3, when he said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he's speaking of knowledge here, not in the sense just of intellectual knowledge, but in the sense of knowing Christ. And of course, that is through knowing his word and the Holy Spirit acting through his word. Now, just in a quick look at the three chapters, just in general, quick summary. In the first chapter, Peter opened the letter with a description of the Christian life. He describes true believers in chapter 1 before he describes the counterfeits in chapter 2. So the best way to detect falsehood is to stand and know what are the characteristics of the truth. The Christian life begins with faith. That faith is in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. That faith involves God's power, a power that produces life and godliness, That faith involves God's precious promises given to us in his word, and that faith results in spiritual growth. And we see all that in the first chapter. The best defense against false teaching is true believing and true living. But this Christian living must be based on this authoritative word of God. And that's, of course, a key word there authoritative. It must be the authority in everything in our lives. False teachers find it easy to seduce people who do not know their Bible, who are desires of experiences with the Lord. It's a dangerous thing to build on subjective experience alone and ignore objective revelation. We're not saying experience is bad. It just has to be subject to the authority of the Word of God. And Peter speaks of his experience in the first chapter on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then after speaking of his 
tremendous experience in terms of the transfiguration of Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You see, the experience is subjected to the word of God. Then in chapter 2, Peter wants us to be alert of false teachers, and he describes their false teachers. He describes their destructive heresies, their deceptions, and their promise of false freedom. They are destined for destruction. And then in chapter 3, Peter deals with their false teaching concerning Christ's second coming. And he assures us of God's future certain judgment, no matter what the heretics say. Then he exhorts us to respond rightly to the Lord's second coming. Our daily conduct must be considered consistent with our hope in Christ's return, the promise of eternal glory. Peter exhorts us to live lives characterized by holy conduct and godliness as we look to Christ and our, as our hope.